ladies, gentlemen, children of all ages, welcome to this Fuds on Film podcast. I am Scott Morris and I am joined today by Mr. Drew Tavendale. Hello. And so it's October, it's very nearly Halloween, so we thought what better thing to do than to talk about Bond films. Um, but I suppose there is something of a thematic link with Spectre just being unleashed into cinemas. So there is actually a fairly reasonable reason to run around and start taking a look at the history of James Bond. We're going to talk about the various actors who've played him, some of the more interesting films that he's been in, and all the other accoutrements that the Bond genre itself has to throw at us. We're missing from this podcast, of course, Craig Eastman, who I think may be the biggest uh, Bond fan of us all. Uh, but yes, um, it's a bit unfortunate that he's stuck in a warehouse with some boxes. Yes, yeah, uh, stuck in a haunted warehouse where he'll spend the night. It's some sort of Scooby-Doo plot, I'm not quite sure why. <laughs> or a really bad Eddie Murphy film, one of the two. <laughs> Is there any other kind? Even though I'm perhaps not the world's biggest Bond fan, I've certainly seen all of the films multiple times, and I'm still very excited to go and see the new one when it came out just a few days ago, so we should hopefully be able to bring some enthusiasm towards this uh, endeavour for you. Do you have any particular thoughts on your history with Bond? Are you a, um, are you a massive fan? or Massive would be overstating it. I certainly, it's something I remember growing up with. You know, mm. films were always on TV and... yeah something that just it's just a part of childhood as much as something probably even like star wars was yeah, right. in terms of viewing things very much the background to any bank holiday in the uk wasn't it yeah absolutely star wars or a bond film i liked them quite a lot i remember them all quite clearly but i think my tastes have very much changed them over the years given yeah. that like most people talk about sort of their bond the bond that was current um, in the cinemas when they were growing up as being their favorite bond and that's yeah. never been the case with me, but my bond is that would have been I used to quite like and now despise. So I've got a, <laughs> a, quite a different history with Bond. Changing tastes, just as the franchise has changed somewhat over the years, although perhaps not as much as uh, it, it perhaps should have done over the, uh, what are we? 53 years. years. Yeah. Um, Doctor No was 1962, so 53 years, yeah. Yeah, wow. So it uh, has to be the longest running film franchise, I suppose. We must start at the very start. Doctor No, and of course this is the very first outing for Bond, barring some pub quiz trivia answers that you can get if you want to go with the, the strange TV adaptation or the radio plays, but for most people, the original Bond is of course Sean Connery. Yes, it's, it's a classic. He's who so many people think of as the Bond. Not just because he's the first, but that certainly comes into a lot, and I don't think we appreciate now that the book's back then really were very popular and the book was sort of a very much secondary possibly even tertiary thing to Bond now Yeah, you hear Bond and you think of the movies but they, are, they were popular books so quite an anticipated movie Yeah, have you ever actually read any of them? I've read Casino Royale Yeah, I've done the same and I really could not get past that I, I struggled to finish that book because it's very difficult to get through a book where it starts talking about things with the sweet tang of rape Yes, it's um, a very troubling attitude to pretty much everything from Fleming <laughs> in that instance Yeah, and there's some very disturbing things in there. I mean, misogyny and Bond go hand in hand, but there's yes, a rather unpleasant nature to all of the book, which apart from a couple of moments, is never really in the films. No, I would probably say it is perhaps most in the first film. Doctor No does have something of a, a that kind of edge to it. It's also quite unusual when you go back and watch it these days because there is a certain formula that you could expect most Bond films to more or less fit into until quite recently and this really is not it when you go back and watch Doctor No. It's a 
very differently paced film. It's very differently structured. The whole first half of the film, you don't even get to know who the bad guy is going to be in it. Mm-hmm. And it, it has various things that you will never see Bond doing for the rest of the franchise, such as actually investigate something <laughs> or be in some sort of danger. Unusual in a lot of respects in that regard. And it's certainly the one which shows off his uh, cooler, more cold-hearted assassin side. The whole, that's a Smith & Wesson, you've had your six moment, still kind of lives very vividly for me. Mm-hmm. It's also a bit drier, the wit in there, and there's it's the very first film, but even then the, the famous one-liners are in there, mm-hmm. but they're not over the top, like they became very quickly, particularly by the Roger Murray or in yeah. Dr. No, there's the sort of the occasional quip, but they're, they're quite dry, and the characters just, you know, he's cool, and like sort of both senses of the word there, and sort of measured and composed, but with a sense of humour. You know, not almost becomes a clown by some later films, uh, literally in the yes. case of Octopussy. <laughs> but uh, the less said about that, the better. What, what surprised me so much is how well uh, Doctor No holds up. Some aspects of it don't. The effects work obviously is not up to par with what you'd expect from a, the films these days. But if you can really see past that, the actual film itself, I think, is one of the stronger ones in the entries. Uh, yeah, I think in the series. I like you, even the editing feels reasonably fresh. Yeah. fifty years on, actually, um, some of the jump cuts in there that for early 1960s not that common um, and it's still quite effective now famously doesn't have the Bond song but does have some music in it too and, and it just sort of keeps the the tone just up quite nicely without being forced and sometimes in the other Bond films the music seems a bit forced Yeah, everything about Doctor No in that regard is a bit more relaxed relaxed and you hesitate to say realistic in a, a franchise <laughs> such as this but of any of them it's it's certainly the most realistic until you get into the, the well, modern get era, the, most well, grounded at least. Well, until you get to the man with the metal hands. That is true, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Even things like the uh, Doctor No, his, his schemes at least actually kind of have some sort of grounding in reality as well. It does seem like something that could actually be done, um, and it's the sort of thing you might send a your top spy to, to counteract. Yeah. Whereas, obviously, it, it very quickly... Uh, snowballs into extreme ridiculous the, 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 the further on into the franchise you go. Yes, uh, I'm just thinking of chimneys uh, now. We'll get onto that, but it's, suddenly I, it began to ridiculousness and all I could think of is a man in a wheelchair going down a chimney. Oh, whoa. How did it get to that? It didn't even take that long. It's only 10 years. Don't know. Starts it all off. And we're not going to talk about every film individually, are we? No, I mean, uh, we're not, we, uh, we can't possibly hope to cover all of the films. I mean, and there's certainly a few we'll, we'll skip over because quite a lot of them you could apply the same logic to, for yeah, example. Okay. I would say, essentially, you could apply all the same reasoning to why I, I really liked uh, Dr. No. Basically holds over into From Russia With Love. Yeah. Uh, it's very similar in that kind of regard. It's still quite low term, but it's still very enjoyable, so... After Doctor No turned out to be rather large success, decided, well, perhaps we should make more of these uh, in a way that every film producer since has done, um, because you know sequels <laughs> are what it's all about nowadays. In this case, it was not a film that was lowish key in the same way that Doctor No is. It's not quite the same massive take over the world type plans, no layers inside volcanoes or anything like that. And yeah, from Russia with Love, I think is probably my favourite it's, it's the first one with a theme song but one I happen to really like and you know it starts introducing some of the, the tropes that you see later in the Bond films and it's realised that Spectre all quite early actually and you can see Blofeld and Rosa Klebb and things so all things that would they would 
come back to repeatedly over the years. Some of the things that stick out for me from from Russia with Love is uh, it's part of the the kind of recurring franchise of him jetting off to you know exotic locations, which he kind of had in Doctor No, but I think this is the first one where it starts uh, giving you the, the kind of tourist guide to places you would like to go and see. It's perhaps where I, I harboured this ambition to go to Istanbul from this, from this as a kid. <laughs> you just wanted to go in that wee underground bit with all the yeah. pillars and the water. Yeah. It's got that. It still has a reasonable amount of what you could still loosely call spycraft in it, but you're starting to see elements of the, the Bond formula getting in there quite effective supporting characters in this one as well. Yeah, I'm thinking in particular of Karen Bay, who I could happily seen him, like a proper spin-off franchise with him in the lead would have been quite cool as well. Yeah, but it's already, it's also got, you know, it's fair share of misogynistic things going on, women wrestling stuff, basically for entertainment of men, that sort of thing, which yeah. um, series all struggle to get away from. In some cases, doesn't seem to have tried at all. It's still, it's not one that quite fits into the formula yet. So the first two kind of stand apart from pretty much the rest of the series, I would say. Yeah. Uh, up until perhaps the start of the Daniel Craig era. Yeah. So for us, I thought it's no sort of standing their own. The third film, though, which again, every film had been more successful than one before for quite a long time. The third film is probably the one where the formula really gets set. Yeah. You've got, so third one is, of course, Goldfinger. You have... Uh, the plot to irradiate the world's gold supply, which is a particularly weird plot, but yeah. very fitting of um, how things would go on in Bond films. And, you know, the iconic bad guy with yeah. his henchmen. And, some, and it's a, an enjoyable film. It's got some great lines, you know, the real classic, you know. Do you expect me to talk? You know, some some just really good scenes in that with um, the laser cutting up between Sean Connery's legs and stuff. But you've got Q with his gadgets. You've got the gadget car, the evil Bond girl who turns into somebody that helps him in the end. All this, the things that would be in pretty much every film after is really established in Goldfinger. My abiding memory of Goldfinger is for, for some reason I always thought this was much further down the chain than it actually was because when you've when before I kind of revisited these a few years ago they, they do have a bit of a tendency to kind of merge uh, in the, the memory but I've always thought that the, the moment where Honor Blackman s- stands up and announces I'm pussy galore and the response is I'm <laughs> is probably the point where Bond got substantially less interesting for me yeah. um, because it is the it's this kind of start of the formula that they'll keep going and going back to time and time again. But uh, you have to respect Goldfinger for being the first in there. It establishes the template that everything else is being stamped out from. So yeah, such a great amount of historical value that uh, it's very worth well watching. And of course, it's still tremendously enjoyable because uh, by this point, Connery's playing Bond is basically second nature. It's, as you say, as the most uh, sort of the, the iconic villains and henchmen. Clearly better action scenes, you know, night, mm-hmm. night and day uh, from it's, the earlier stuff. Basically, you can see that they've they've learned and their practice and everything just feels that much more polished by the time you get to Goldfinger. Yeah. Um, sort of like, oh, right, yeah, we know how to put this together now. Everything feels that bit slicker. I mean, a bit more budget, I think, but it wasn't. It's more just because there's largely the same crews working on all the films yeah. so far. We're familiar with the character. We know what to do here. Everything feels that a bit slicker. So much higher production value in our films. They see much better action scenes too. Everything's just handled better. So they're progressing, but they just, unfortunately, after Goldfinger, don't progress so much in other ways. 
you could probably apply that to the next few films in the series. But of course, with Goldfinger, you have to respect any film that's got Berkwalk in it. <laughs> and and that scene with the uh, Mafia henchman in it, which was lovely because it's a whole scene full of uh, like what, 10 or so Mafia wise guys all sounding exactly like you'd expect a stereotypical Mafia <laughs> wise guy to sound. Um, I mean, it's the film that particularly sticks in the memory because it just has so many iconic scenes. I mean, odd job with his hat, you know, flinging it at the, the statues and then in the bars in Fort Knox. The, the classic, it's been, there's been homages to and parodies of it, so many things of the countdown timer that yeah. stops at 007 um, and the bomb, all those sorts of things that it just had such an impact on the Bond films themselves and so many other films too. I'd say that while this established the formula, um, Thunderball again is just another slight refinement of that. Yeah. Where you're dealing with Spectre's plan to steal a nuclear equipped bomber or... Essentially it's the same kind of idea again. It's more emphasis on the action uh, less emphasis on any kind of investigation at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's particularly tenuous in Thunderball. I mean isn't Thunderball the one where basically it starts with him going to a spa and then uncovering this plot? Yes, <laughs> that's it the exactly. Don't um, <laughs> so forget the jetpack and Thunderball either. And I think Thunderball actually more than any film really matters the start of the one where they came up with a f- title that they thought sounded good and then had to backfill a song into it, which has been another hallmark <laughs> of the Bond series. Like, the name of this makes no sense at all. Let's fix the song. And so you've got Tom Jones saying about something being like Thunderball without that having any meaning at all for any person on the planet, <laughs> which is kind of endearing in itself. <laughs> they kept trying to do that. But yeah, they're unremarkable in terms of like being spy films. They are becoming just action films at that point. And... I remember when we I was rewatching them a few years ago too, that that's where I was actually starting to lose interest. But rewatching them, I'm thinking, I don't like these as much as I used to because the action scenes just don't hold me like they did when I was a kid. I would far rather see spycraft than investigation. You know, half an hour of people running around in an oil rig firing machine guns at each other. It's just tremendously dull. Yeah, and that element of these Bond films is going to age worse than mm. anything else, isn't it? Certainly that. The points where you're talking about more about the spycraft stuff, that will still hold up and would still hold up many years from now. That's why things like that Bruce File is still uh, yep. quite watchable these days. Whereas well, even even that franchise was not immune from it. If you go back and watch The Billion Dollar Brain, <laughs> then yeah, you wouldn't want to watch The Billion Dollar Brain. <laughs> exactly. It's perhaps disappointing that you're almost starting to get into the, the diminishing returns era with the formula already. But I still think that Thunderball's one of the better Bond films. It's not at the point where they've battered the formula to death. Yeah, and it still has a few right. very interesting things with uh, Largo as the the villains. Still quite entertaining. The action's oh, still okay. Uh, I just think it gets bonus points for having the Bond girl getting a toe from a turtle, which is not a euphemism. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, well, after Thunderball, it's very much began to slip into formula, which is not to say the films aren't enjoyable but they tend not to be doing anything particularly interesting for quite a while after this. Yeah. Um, can you just touch briefly on It's You Only Live Twice? You Only Live Twice is kind of at the point where it's, it's now getting ridiculous. I mean, the, the point that's always stuck in my mind about You Only Live Twice and how you can how you can see how this has been affected, the, the progression of the franchise, is that the first time you hear, well, I believe it's the first time anyway, the first time you hear the Bond theme back in From Russia With Love during the film, What's he doing? He's he's stalking around a hotel room, looking for various bugs and that kind of thing, setting up elaborate little tells, like you know, hairs across doors and all that yeah. kind of thing. So you, you know, it's basically little bits of spycraft. When do you hear it in You Only Live Twice? You hear it when he's dashing about in a flat pack helicopter, just as he's about to uh, go at the head 
of some ninjas repelling down the side of a volcano into a base. Now, that's some difference. In <laughs> and it's not been so many films <laughs> between them, you know. No, the, the rest of it is, it's almost Bond by the numbers. It still works. I think all the, all the Connery films work because of Sean Connery in it. However, the most interesting thing, apart from what I mentioned earlier with You Only Live Twice, is of course the quite staggering makeup job that they do when Bond has to go undercover in Japan. Yes, which uh, is he's one step away from putting his fingers in the sides of his eyes, isn't he? It's, <laughs> yes. it's just it's not good. Yeah, it's it's not shades. at all good. Neither convincing nor sensitive, shall we say? Indeed, not. No. <laughs> okay, so after you only live twice. Sean Connery decided to leave the series and is replaced by, of all things, an Australian model, which is not the most obvious casting choice for Bond. And so we have On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which has an opening that very much divides opinion. And actually even between the FUDs and film crew, because I know Craig likes it, if I believe I'm remembering that correctly, and I absolutely despise it when... The film begins on a beach with an incident happening and George Lazenby turning to the camera, like breaking the fourth wall. It just seems so terrible. And then says, This never happened to the other fella. And it divides opinion so much because I'm of the school that the actors change, but the character's meant to be the same character. Whereas that sort of suggests that James Bond is a code name and isn't the same person at all. So It's a series that's always had something of a confused chronology and the rest of uh, this film does. It no way clarifies anything <laughs> no. it's trying to do. Yes, uh, I, I kind of fall into the camp of thinking that's a bit stupid, but yes, I find it difficult to separate my opinion on that from my opinion <laughs> on the rest of the film, which yes. is that it's dire. Yeah, um, Absolutely daddy dire. I mean, to be fair to it, it's neither the worst Bond nor the worst Bond film. Um, I would say it contests quite strongly on both. <laughs> um, it's a contender, but I, I would argue till I'm blue in the face that there are two, there's an option for that is worse for both of those categories, substantially so, and I will fight you. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a, a particularly daft um, film with some really dodgy special effects work in like the bobsleigh run. Yeah. Really strange choice of villain, Telly Savalas. There's a song about Christmas trees. It's... It's a very confused film and we've got a sort of vague plot about taking over the world basically with hypnosis tapes. The Telly Savalas' Blofeld fancied himself a bit of a Paul McKenna, an evil Paul McKenna. Is there any other kind of Paul <laughs> I was McKenna? Gonna say that. It's a strange, strange film that just seems to involve George Leeson being a kilt for some reason and he's in a relationship and then gets loses his wife and then decide to drop that f- um, thread for 40 years that he's lost the woman he loves yeah. it's a bit of a uneven film and it goes between bad and awful yeah in my opinion this is very even, evenly dreadful uh, <laughs> in the main he's not helped out by anything that's going on around him but this, the simple fact is that George Lazenby is not Bond no, he, no, he, no, he no way shape or form in the role I can kind of see why you might want to go for some unknown actor given the you, you wouldn't want anyone carrying too much baggage to the role could be seen as a, a very valid casting strategy but how you got this lump I don't know the most obvious thing is to compare and contrast to what's just went before. You know, comparing to Connery, you've got Connery prowling throughout his move. He he's got this kind of sense of physicality that he always seems to be just that a moment away from jumping or pouncing on someone, be it a, yeah, a villain that's... or a woman, and just the way Lazenby just flounces around. <laughs> it, 
Connery, when, when Connery fights, actually looks like you could believably punch people. But Lazenby's terrible in a way. He just sort of flails around windmilling his arms wildly. He's, <laughs> he's just terrible in all the action scenes and he has very little charm to kind of coast through the rest of the film either. Yeah, he's quite wooden. And I say quite wooden the way that, like, you know, Oak's quite wooden. <laughs> it's because he's a model, I think, not an actor. So he's got a lot of training there. When Sean Connery started, he was fairly raw. But Connery works too because he's the man that oozes charisma. Yeah. And he's also got that sort of same physicality that Liam Neeson has this sort of effortless thing I was like yeah you kind of believe he could hurt you without yeah, without yeah. trying too much so it's, it's partly it's height but it's a bit more than that with Liam Neeson you know he used to be a boxer and there's always that that sense of strength and physicality that Connery has in some degree as well and then you get to Lazenby and he's just he basically thinks he's on a catwalk yeah <laughs> and then so Telly Savalas gets his head trapped in a branch and they kill his wife and they decided that basically George Lazenby was going to kill the franchise so he left but what puzzles me still to this day about this film is there are a number of people who are apparently not clinically insane who will declare that that is the best film in the series <laughs> now, I can kind of see if you took every element in here and redid it much better there's a possibility that it could be because it is the first time you see anything like any sort of semblance of character development from him yeah um, that's fair it's, it's the first Bond film that treats a woman with someone with substantially more utility than a sweat sock. You can see that the, you rejigged certain elements about if you wrote it in a certain light, if you kind of played it back slightly differently, you know, mind, yes, this could be a good Bond film. It could be a good film without even just dropping the Bond prefix, but I mean, it's if you, not. If you God, changed, it's not. If you changed everything about it, it'd be really good. But, yeah. um, so, I know people really like that film. I, I don't understand where they're coming from. Yeah, I'd get like the idea, like the execution. No, not so much. All of which led to the Broccoli's reversing into John Connery's drive with a dump truck full of dollar bills and <laughs> yes. just unloading that yes. on the ground. Dollar, dollar bill, y'all. Yeah, so we come back, Connery comes back for Diamonds Are Forever. Slightly, well, at least to begin with, um, it seems like they're going slightly lower key in terms of the plot which of course <laughs> yeah. doesn't last and for the most part again it's fairly formulaic and there's not too much value to be had talking about the plot I think what interests me more about the film is one characterization thing is like having openly gay characters in the middle of a 1960s big budget film like that was kind of unusual I don't want to use the word brave but certainly bold if they hadn't been such ridiculously camp characters though it might have been better yeah but the fact that there were characters like that in there, that's that's progressive in a way, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's what springs to mind when I think about <laughs> Diamonds Are Forever. It's progressive. Uh, it's, it's, it's a social justice warrior of a film. That's what it is. The other thing that I want to talk about with Diamonds Are Forever though, is, is a particular bugbear of mine with the series. I mean, this is the, the first really notable example. And that is the the way they recast people. Yeah. Now, Star Trek's done this, but it's never been as egregious as it has been in the Bond films. But what you have is the man who was um, a fairly major character when you only lived twice. He was Bond's MI6 contact in Tokyo. Yeah. The same character plays the main villain in Diamonds Are Forever. And we're supposed to just forget we've seen him before. Yeah. Because they do that a lot. And then and if, by the time you get to the Pierce Brosnan era, you've got the man who is the major villain in a Timothy Dalton film becomes... Uh, the CIA contact for Brosnan films that, oh, but just pretend you've not seen him before. Oh, a completely different man. <laughs> uh, it's something that's a real bugbear of mine because it's like, it takes you out of it immediately. I'm a fan of the Bond films. I've watched them all. Why is he the bad guy now? He, he's, he, I, I, I remember. 
I'm, yeah. I'm definitely seen him before. I'm not going to forget. At least they make an attempt to explaining that as some sort of plastic surgery <laughs> thing in it, but for the rest of them, no, it's just just forget he was something else. Anyway. Yeah, they just give they up on it later on. That, yeah. yeah, Diamonds River is, is a, an odd film for me on a number of levels. If you came to this cold, you would probably think this was a parody of the earlier films because <laughs> it, it is now at the point where everything's been cranked up way past 11 I mean, it, and it's just got lots of these, lots of little silly touches that would be, you know, it would curse the Moore era that we'll talk about in a minute but, you know, things like uh, when they're, you know, the guys that are, the guys pretending to be on the, the surface of the moon kind of walking, bouncing around and Bonds <laughs> comes along and driving in the background in a golf buggy and all it's just daft. I mean, yeah. most of this is, if, if this was released with, with a title change to Austin Powers Moonraker, it probably wouldn't wouldn't have raised any alarm bells. It'd really be just as funny. It's, uh, yeah, there's some yeah, there's something about the attitude in that film seems a bit different. I don't know if they were getting lazy or blasé or I don't know what, but it's got yeah, the whole sort of film just it's got a different tone. It doesn't feel like they cared as much. Yeah, it's it's taken itself substantially less seriously. Yeah, and then you have you're saying about the Austin Powers thing too, I and mean, that. Um, the classic moment where the car's going along the alley on its wheels and they realise that they shot the coming out of the alley wrong so had it flip in the middle in a way it's impossible but that would actually fit in a Austin Powers film yeah and don't be out of place at all but this is meant to be taken seriously and thought it's, 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 it's almost a self-parody you're right well it is a film which shows you an elephant winning on slot machines <laughs> <laughs> if that's not self-parody I don't know what is um, it's also one of the points where you really think that Spectre really ought to get better forensic accountants because their scheme in this one is basically revolving around launching diamond-encrusted satellites, which they will use to extort money from various governments around the world. But I would suggest that if you can build and launch diamond-encrusted satellites, perhaps you don't need any more money. <laughs> that, that box is probably ticked. It's kind of self-defeating, really, isn't it? It's just like, we're going to generate electricity to make money by burning all this cash we have lying around. <laughs> yeah, so it, it, it's certainly nowhere near my favourite uh, Connery film. It is still watchable enough in its own way, but, I mean, it's certainly the, the least of the Bond era, well, to this point, at least. The only other thing that I have in my notes that I, I made from a while back now is that it, one of the memorable moments is includes some quite... Uh, nice close quarter fighting scenes so again the action scenes are actually still quite quite competent I think in this but at one point he is he accuses a rat of smelling like a tart's handkerchief and I must confess I do not remember that happening in the film but if it did happen more power to it I have got nothing to say to that at all. So it's also it's another film where just the names of the characters are they're sort of carry on level names aren't they plenty of tool it's just ridiculous stop it now please <laughs> finally after seven films um well six that he did but after the seventh film Connery leaves for good sort of and we've got Roger Moore who had apparently been courted for the role for ages um had been well known for playing the saint on television and he comes along and goes well look you thought Lacey Bear was bad watch me um <laughs> Because, yeah, I'll just get this out now. Roger Moore is awful. He's awful, 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 awful. I don't like Roger Moore. And this is... See, I don't remember not liking him when I was a kid. This So, as I was saying, this was, he would be my Bond. He was a Bond that was in cinemas when I was a kid. The first films I can remember watching are things like A View to a Kill. <laughs> and I went back and watched these and I'm like, Roger Moore's a, A, an abysmal actor. B, an abysmal films. C, playing the character in a deeply, deeply unlikable way. And a borderline 
comedy role and D he's terrible yeah also what's up with that leisure suit the only thing I would take issue with that in that little tirade was borderline I think he does play Bond <laughs> as a comedy character yes I'm uh, sorry yes, I was just being a bit too kind there like, yeah. there's not really much doubt about it is there yeah it's a, it's a baffling casting call on a lot of levels I mean primarily you think this would be maybe not a young man's game but you know there's there's an element of that and it I mean when it, the last Connery outing you could sense that perhaps he was getting a little bit too old for this and it wasn't quite working out quite so convincingly for him. So why in the end you would cast someone older yes. and less physically adept, I do not know. It is a very strange decision. I, mean, I suppose it must have made sense at the time. I also thought he could bring something to it. And what always strikes me about it is it's a sort of casting decision that would make sense for something like uh, you know Patrick McNee in The Avengers or something like that. If he was going to play that kind of role of the kind of slightly quirky, eyebrow-raising quip guy while he had some sidekick who was doing all the heavy lifting in terms of the action roles, I think that could have worked. But it's not. It's still... This man who clearly does not have any business being in hand-to-hand combat situations, just kind of trying to fake his way through these roles, and oh, it no, looks he, terrible. He just cannot pull them off convincingly at all, does he? He never once, not even for all the the films he was in, he never looks comfortable in that sort of scenario at all. No, the strange thing is they keep writing them in. I suppose you, you kind of have to in something like this. I suppose you couldn't really get rid of it realistically, but you think you would minimise it, but no, they still keep putting them in front and centre and um, it, it never once looks good. No. I have a lot of problems with Moore's portrayal of Bond. It is perhaps not Moore's fault exactly, but the way that Moore and the rest of the, the script writers and the directors have been pushing that was to basically turn this into a very highly camp action sequences all the way throughout and this is the problem with it you you lose any sort of hint of spycraft at all in any of these things it's all just somewhat boring action sequences and daft gadgets yeah they double down on the gadgets and the, the movie era. double down on the gadgets double down on the silly one-liners and quips drop all um investigation or anything like that and just like it's basically you just imagine that the stage direction the screen directions for merge mover mug like an idiot Mug for all your worth, Roger. Mug. Yeah. Also, this is perhaps the era where they kind of run out of ideas for what to do with Bond. I mean, a lot of these films, almost all the films, I think all of them to this point, have had names based on uh, the Fleming books. But in terms of the actual content of the film, not really anything close to it. I think Thunderball was the last one that kind of tread roughly closely to what Fleming was writing. Uh, and here is probably where we start just outright stealing from the, the, the pop culture scene around it, which might not be a bad thing, but it always does it in a very ham-fisted way. And in mm. particular, the first one, Live and Let Die, essentially a black exploitation film as Bond is going off against uh, Dr. Kananga and and his, uh, his band of uh, merry men who are trying to flood America with cheap heroin, I guess it would have been. I forget. Drugs, certainly. Yeah, I think um, heroin. And it, it's quite low-key, I suppose, in terms of what Bond films could be. But even though it's got something relatively grounded and low-key to go with, it still can't stop itself implying that the bad guy has a henchman who is a literal immortal voodoo king. Yes. <laughs> you know? yeah, Baron Samidi. Yep, yep. He, he's indestructible. You can't kill him. It doesn't even so much suggest suggest it as down outright say it it's like yeah, he's there at the end like, okay he's immortal then okay yeah I mean, it, it does feel in, in many great respects that it's a film with two white people in it who are good the entire rest of the film is full of black people who are evil yes and, and also inflatable apparently um, with the, <laughs> possibly the most ridiculous death scene in all of cinema yes 
I don't know if this film is racist or not. It's kind of, it's so it's so out there. It's kind of hard to judge on any kind of stars. <laughs> but it does seem to be the kind of film that would start saying I'm not racist. But <laughs> maybe it's just a sort of trial of the time. But when you go back and watch it now, it is quite off-putting. How live and let Daily Mail. Yes. <laughs> If you're going to start comparing it to sort of earlier Bond films, you can't you can't possibly argue that this doesn't have better action sequences than say Doctor No. The technology has come along so far. However, it's still just a very bad film, and it feels there's lots of things I just don't like on it. I mean, in particular, it's the first introduction to Louisiana Sheriff J. W. Pepper, who keeps popping up and down these Murira films like a bad smell. You just cannot get rid of him, and he's never once been funny or amusing or diverting, and no. it annoys me no end. No, I would agree with that. Although I just find that's kind of a feeling I feel through most of the uh, the Roger Moore year Bond. And in the interest of me A, staying awake and B, not losing the will to live, I really like to rush through Roger Moore as much as I can because I just, I can't stand him. I cannot stand the man. And it doesn't help that he's just in a succession of awful films. Yeah, I remember quite liking the next one, Man with the Golden Gun, but when I watched it again, it's... Dreadful. Yeah. And um, Christopher Lee's dreadful. I would have remembered him being a great Bond villain, but nope, dreadful. Nope. Um, <laughs> I mean, none of the stuff that happens there is in any way memorable. It's, it's, you only tend, well, certainly I only tend to remember particularly well daft stuff too. So Man with the Golden Gun had one impressive car stunt. Okay. It then had that sheriff again for no good reason. It had the silly car plane thing and it had a third nipple. And it's like... That's all the stuff that's really memorable. It's nothing about the plot or any good action sequences. It's all just daft stuff that's like, well, what's going on here? Well, the only thing that I really took as a lesson from the film was it did teach me that the best and most time-effective way to become a CEO of a large multinational corporation is to shoot the previous chairman <laughs> and then simply assume his duties because that'll work, apparently. Go on dead, this. dead men's shoes, Scott. That's what it's all yep. about. And then, so, like, let's just skip over that. There's nothing memorable about that film. I've seen it said that, you know, Scaramanga is the best Bond villain in one of the worst Bond movies. And I think that's no. probably wrong on both counts. Yes. But it, it's, uh, it's certainly no good, and he's no good. So There's not too much memorable about the next film, but there is one particular thing that's worth talking about in Despite Love, because there's something about that bothers me too. And this is something I don't remember when I was younger, because I didn't pick up on it. But I have a real beef with this film, and that's it. For the Roger Moore films, it's probably the best. It's pretty well regarded and well liked. And I remember liking it quite a lot, even when it's got introduction of daft characters like Jaws, who just never did anything for me and never understood the point of Jaws. Because so maybe it's a better character in the books, but in the film, he's just sort of, hello, I'm big and I've got silly teeth. Right. Uh, no, that's it. That, that's my entire reason, Detra. Okay. But it's Spy Love Me, so you've got. They're a slightly stronger female character. There's some interesting stuff going on. Cooperation between British and Russian intelligence agencies and stuff. That's all quite interesting. And then Bond goes to a tent in the middle of the desert and is basically given a sex slave. And I, I had never noticed that when I was younger, but I can't stop thinking about it when I think about this film now and it bothers me so much. Yeah. Because in all the other films, Bond is like, he's a Lothario. You know, he can just have the women that he wants. But in every other film, it's the women's choice. Right, he seduces them, but they don't have to do anything. Whereas in the spy who loved me, they just take it far too far. He's in that tent in the desert, mm. and basically the guy who's hosting Bond points at a woman, basically says, "You can sleep with her." 
she doesn't have a choice in it. She's a sex slave. And that really, really bothers me. And because of that, I can't watch this film anymore. Yeah. It's a really big issue to me. And nobody else seems to be that bothered about it, which puzzles me. It's a fair issue. I mean, I, it, it probably doesn't bother me because I can't remember it. But <laughs> I'll certainly take your word for it. But it, it's a very Flemingish thing to do, I suppose. So in that respect, it's <laughs> in that quite respect, a, yeah, absolutely. But quite accurate. Um, I mean, that aside, which I mean, I guess I've been able to separate it because I don't recall anything <laughs> on it. Um, but the rest of the film. I do like it more than any of the other Murira films. It does kind of pull together a bit better, but it is still a wholly derivative mishmash of everything that's gone before it. Uh, there's not really anything new here, but as you say, it does have a semblance of a strong female character, so that is one of the unalloyed good points of the film. The rest of it, I think the one thing that annoys me about the way the film's structured is the the bad guy has one of these plans to destroy the entire world and start again under the sea in his underwater uh, city contraptions, but... You never get any actual reasoning why he wants to do this. Shit, it's just giggles, I assume. Yeah, a couple of a couple of lines would have been nice, just to yeah. give me some something of that. But you know, fair enough. Um, other than that, it's just going off and slopping it the way that Bond always does. I think that's one of the things that marks out the movie, or for me particularly, other than you know the abysmal acting, is that there's nothing there's nothing innovative. And they don't no. really try and it's like, oh, we we'll just keep doing the same stuff. At no point ever do they really try to do anything new, apart from Octopussy, which case basically tried to plumb new depths but that's not yeah. quite what i mean <laughs> i mean a lot of it and certainly the, the, the memorable ones are really just where they've taken the same bond formula and applied whatever pop culture was going through it mm. at the time yeah uh, which i mean really does lead directly onto moonraker uh, the following film which is you know clearly at the time when star wars was doing great business someone's decided well let's try that with bond leading to this debacle <laughs> um and yeah absolutely another one too where they've had to retrofit the song to a terrible meaningless title <laughs> i believe i watched this directly after watching the spy who loved me and it's striking that it is exactly the same plot but in space rather than under the sea <laughs> Exactly the same. It is exactly the same. And has Jaws as well. Um, Yeah. It's almost a search and replace job, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's basically, well, well, didn't one guy's plan to um, destroy the world, live under the sea didn't work, but we'll destroy the world and live above it. Um, Yeah, it's it's not even a joke that it's identical. It's the same film. Yeah. Um, And as such, really gets all the uh, same criticisms. Um, But... Probably it doesn't have any of the strong points that Spy Who Loved Me did. It's dated terribly. The special effects look appalling. All the space stuff is just dreadful. You know, he's, you know lasers zapping around and space marines. It's, it just has not aged at all well. I don't like banging on about old films not having great special effects because obviously they're limited by what they could do. But in a film like this where all it has is the special effects, it's really the only thing that's in there is the action scenes which were so effects laden. When those don't deliver, the rest of the film can't possibly deliver. No. Uh, the rest of it is the usual weak points. You know, you Moore going around doing his quipping act and dragging everything down. The Bond villain in this case, Hugo Drax, is not memorable in the slightest either. He is forgettable. Which is such, to me, such a pity because because Michael Lonsdale is fantastic. This isn't that many f- years removed from The Day of the Jackal, in which he's absolutely superb. Mm. Um, it's a truly excellent movie. And like, oh, Michael Lonsdale put on the paper. Okay, may as well not be in there. Yeah, he has got nothing to work with in this film. I mean, he's he comes across as a sort of middle manager. He comes across as David Brent from The Office. Yeah. No, and also, yeah, good. there's just a complete lack of direction. And that's something else that marks out that whole era, just 
that it's kind of feels like journeyman directors and a lot of the time it was people who'd been working on Bond films for years and it's basically, oh, it's your turn now, you've put your years in, you've earned your stripes, you get to direct one. And so the, none of the performances are in any way special because there were a couple of moments where if you've got somebody as good as Michael Lonsdale, although possibly he's not quite the right actor to pull this off, but a couple of lines in there that if they just had a wee bit of direction, just maybe tried a couple other takes instead of bombing through it as they seem to have done, would have been more appealing. This line when Drax says, take Mr. Bond away and see that some harm comes to him, delivered yeah. in just the right way with the right emphasis, that would actually be a killer line. Yeah. But no, it's just, it's flat and I don't think the director cared and the actor probably didn't care much either. For me, this is really the point where you give up on Moore's entire run. Yeah. Not just because of the, the excess of the rest of it, because, I mean, things like, you know, Diamonds or Forever was silly and it had its excesses, but it didn't have a hover gondola. <laughs> It didn't have a section of looping tape where you imply that a pigeon is doing a double take because of the hover gondola. And how can you take anything this franchise does seriously after that moment? I do not know. It took some serious rehabilitation to get to the point where I could actually care about a Bond film again. This this is really a stake in the heart of it for a long time for me. Talking of things that you can't take seriously, I think possibly the only thing in the next film for you is only worth talking about is the beginning. Because having dropped entirely the idea of Spectre and Stavro and Stavro Blofeld for a decade, they just randomly decide to have him come back and have him dropped down a chimney in a wheelchair by Bond off of a helicopter. Um, yeah. Be- because so you remember that character? No, no, because we haven't mentioned him in six films. No, so of course you don't remember. But yeah, we'll, we'll chuck him down a chimney. The only the only rationale I've come across that makes any sort of sense for that was it was something to do with the legal wranglings that was going on for the uh, the whole Thunderball never seen ever again thing. It's possible, uh, yeah. Sort of as a kind of um, a thumbs, uh, sort of two fingers up to the state of yeah. Ian Fleming or something. Yeah, but, but why do it now? Yeah. It would have it would have had some sort of sense if you'd put this at the start of the Moore era, which is where I always thought it was until I went back and revisited yeah. these. Um, then you could say, look, there's a new sheriff in town who's from yeah. there. Who doing here in that line about buying trying to buy Bond off with a delicatessen and stainless that's, steel? That's, that's that, like, that line makes my head hurt. It's like, yeah. hello, um, suave, clearly rich spy who wins everything, wins all the women's stuff. Could we corrupt you with a stainless steel delicatessen? No. Oh, my head hurts now thinking about it. Scott, what does it mean? I have no idea what it means. There's a a whole mix of very strange things going on in this film. Curiously, I I find it one of the the least objectionable to watch from the Moon era because it is just quite weird in the way that everything hangs together. There's lots of just strange things. It's not a good film by any stretch of the imagination, but if if I was forced to watch Moor films, this would be probably second on the list after The Spy Who Loved Me. But yes, certainly not something I would look out for. And then, then you get on Octopussy, which... Which we won't talk about. Please, 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 we won't talk about. No, there, there's nothing good in Octopussy. Nuclear, circus, clown outfit, Tarzan, overdubbing. Lots of really bad ideas in Octopussy. Not a single good idea, but lots and lots of bad ones. Three of my least favourite things in the world. You have Roger Moore, bad Bond films, and clowns in the same film. Yes. This is possibly the nadir of the Bond series for me. It is just abysmal, and I just... I don't want to talk about it. I'll cry. You're playing a sort of a, a Joker version of Stephen Berkoff. If Stephen <laughs> Berkoff's in a film, it's obviously going to be terrible, so you don't need to talk about it. So, well, we move on then. Um, to, we'll just quickly finish off the movie. We obviously didn't finish quickly enough. 
with a film that again has promise because it has Christopher Walken in it who we all love yes and so Christopher Walken comes in Max Zorin plan to and we're talking like really grand plans here on a sort of the level of uh, Lex Luthor and Superman the movie level of plan here it's well, let's just crack it's open the San Andreas fault yeah. let's Silicon Valley we're cracking open the San Andreas fault with you know a few explosives because I understand that's exactly how that would work they will big set pieces in the Golden Gate Bridge and things it should all be really good Christopher Walken just should be having a laugh but he does <laughs> <laughs> excellent right on schedule the, easily the most terrifying Bond girl um, <laughs> yes. Grace Jones is a frightening woman but again it's just it's nothing memorable about it I just it's just uh, uh, here it is um, yeah, there's I, been no progression in the series at all for Roger Moore nothing changed every film is much like the last um, nothing's changed but I think obviously you can't stop time and this is another one where it was rapidly become the point where you could not possibly imagine Roger Moore doing another film after this because he looks old mm. in this film yeah he and does it, I mean, I mean he's, uh, you, you can't really criticise someone for just having time happen to them but you, you can criticise the casting of the film I think they should have been looking around for alternative as well from Live and Let Die but in particular the last two films we've seen him really not being capable of doing the things that are asked of him here and yeah. th- that really trampers this film Zorin's Zorin should be great but somehow he just doesn't deliver um, again it has to be direction I suppose if anyone can play an over the top villain by god it should have been Christopher Walken but it just doesn't really hang together all that well it's a fitting end to the series it kind of goes off with a little stumble it's not as bad as Octopussy in my book but certainly it's a bad film and certainly a cap to the this terrible Moore era of films all of which have yeah. really had the same flaws and that flaw is Roger Moore yeah I really Nothing, nothing progressed during that era at all. They started off bad. They stayed bad. They never tried to change anything. Also, they figured no. the money they were getting was enough. Um, it, it's just all marked out just a lack of care. Journeyman directors are saying people haven't put their time in and getting a go, and it just—it's a very unforgettable era. So the Moore era having blissfully drawn to a close but we don't have to put up with them anymore moved on to yet another new bond who i remember scott you saying to me years ago that you thought that timothy dalton was actually and i because i'd always um, disliked him from what i could remember but you said you thought timothy dalton was a good bond in bad films and having revisited his efforts um, a few years ago i'd have to say i broadly agree with that yeah i mean uh, i think if you if you watch the first half of the living daylights i mean i think it's actually a decent film yeah it's a decent film overall but i mean in particular the first half or the first third is a really good bond film and then it sort of it can't help but get inflicted with the kind of silly flaws of going over the top and having having them escape in cello cases and just silly things <laughs> yeah. like that. But Dalton does a tremendous job as Bond. He comes in immediately, kind of seems comfortable in that role, is credible, looks believable, gives it his own little twist as well. Um, he's a great Bond who is wildly underserved by the material given to him. Yeah, that's it, exactly. Uh, yeah, so The Living Daylights, I think, is certainly his best uh, of the two. <laughs> Not that he was given a lot to work with. But yes, as I say, that first third of that film where he's dealing with the extraction of the, the KGB agent who turns out to kind of double-cross them leading to the whole, whole rest of the film does, I think, a pretty good job of showing you why he could be such a good Bond. He, he immediately starts having uh, good chemistry with the, the rest of the, the, the MI6 guys and Q and all that kind of thing. So he just feels like he belongs in that role and he does a, a great job of that. The, the second half of the film kind of falls a bit flat once you deal with the KGB threat and you're left with just the, the weapons dealer who's uh, I, I watched this literally a week ago and I can't remember what his, his goal was he was, he was just trying to start a, a civil war or something or trying to get some KGB 
guys that liked it in sense. Uh, the, the plot just kind of falls away from memory. Uh, the whole second half of it is just a bit of a non-entity to me. But it's a real shame because that first half is very strong. Yeah, um, it's just a pity. Um, because Dalton, he's, he's a kind of slightly rougher gruffer kind of angrier bond and that's actually what's quite appealing um it's, it's very much getting away from the roger Moore era yeah you can't imagine this guy in a clown suit no absolutely not so um you know, it doesn't take any basically this this bond he's kind of slightly meaner less well not less charismatic but sort of less pleasant and that's yeah. that's a nice change actually yeah you start off with Daylight's decent start to the film goes downhill massively and then that's yeah. like you have no idea what's going on with plot also it does have one of my favorite cold opens with the uh, the truck training on Gibraltar, I think that works very well. Yeah, that's it's that's a great it's, it's a great introduction to the new Bond, if you know what I yeah, mean. Yeah, the, the new actor playing him. So I mean, that's quite appealing. Then you <laughs> possibly the less said about the next film from, um, from appealing to appalling. Yes, License <laughs> to Kill, ridiculous film, quite astonishingly eighties. I mean, there's there's nothing about that film that doesn't say eighties, possibly eighties straight to video movie. Um, yeah, it is yeah. terrible in every way. This is the kind of film that I can sort of start to amount a defence in, in, the, in the terms that I can kind of see what they were going for. The, the basic elements of this film would fit in quite well into the modern era, I think. Obviously, it would be done differently, but I mean, the whole point of him seeking revenge for you know his best friend and all that kind of thing, that would work as a framing device for a, a film in the modern era, but it clearly didn't work with the film that they've been given. And the whole thing looks curiously low budget, which is something that's never been applicable to any of the rest of the films. The effects work looks just very shonky. It just seems all a bit low stakes with him going up against uh, another drug baron. Yeah. And it just doesn't seem to have... I, mean, I know there's, he's kind of going more for the kind of personal vendetta kind of thing, but that doesn't really come through either, especially because we've had no indication before this that him and Felix Leiter were anything more than just you know passing acquaintances in the intelligence world. That's it, exactly. Around to yeah. suddenly be, he's my best friend. Really? Are you sure? Did this happen between these films or something? Because so there's not much to uh, much to say about that. I guess um, Timothy Dalton's um, stint was regrettably brief. I think better served with material that could actually be one of the could be one of the better bonds. Absolutely, I think he was uh, wildly deserved by his material given to him. And then we move on to. Um, Pierce Brosnan, who was originally tapped up to be Bond in the early 80s, old Bronholm. But yeah, he was originally tapped up to be Bond during the 80s, but his contract for his television show of Everything Steel was renewed. They never got him. Got some more Roger Moore, got some Timothy Dalton instead. They finally got Pierce Brosnan. What you have is this really deeply entertaining classic film that um, set stage for all films to come. And then you realise, no, that was the video game, which I'd <laughs> loved dearly, and realised that the film isn't all that great. I still like GoldenEye, but I can, as I mentioned on a, I think we were talking about the Mission Impossible podcast, um, it's something that I like, I think, because of the game, yeah, exactly. rather because of the film itself. I still find GoldenEye curiously enjoyable for a number of very strange reasons. First, I think that Brosnan is a safe pair of hands for Bond. I don't think he ever does anything spectacular throughout his entire tenure, but he's capable he's and believable yeah. in the role. Um, he's, he's fine. He pulls off the whole suave, sophisticated, charismatic thing quite well and doesn't mm. have quite the same sort of terrible mugging and delivery of awful one-liners that Roger Moore had. So he isn't quite so encumbered by that. Yeah, he, as I say, he just seems solid. The rest of the film sort of works through its, just by its mishmash of quirks that all find kind of mesh together to become quite amusing for me. I mean, from the outset, it's strange seeing the Sean Bean trying to do received pronunciation and be the, the kind of posh agent who 
Bond will eventually go up to face against as he takes over the GoldenEye satellite, which you know fires off EMP pulses and he'll use that to get revenge for a particularly, I mean, I don't want to say, well, it's, it's a relatively obscure bit of historical trivia <laughs> that this man is trying to avenge. Leanne's Cossacks. From on, on, yeah, yeah on, on the basis of his father. So it's uh, strange in that basis, but I can kind of see it does work, I think, for the most part. Alan Cumming uh, is it. Is a, is a, certainly it works as a revenge plot but the, the other strange things just the casting of it's weird as you say Alan Cumming who doesn't belong in anything and other weird things I mean I could I can almost get behind Robbie Coltrane being the uh, ex-KGB now mafia uh, kind of guy but why on earth does he have to have a girlfriend who's mini driver murdering stand by your man I have no uh, idea I do not know what's going on with that um, There's a number of weird things that's going on in this film, and that's that kind of what drags me back to, and it's what makes it the most memorable and, and my, my favourite of his era. It's a very strange film. I think it, it just about works. Again, it's got another quite uh, well-realised female uh, Bond lead, uh, Bond girl in Natasha's. She's quite competent and you know, also doesn't take up with any... Yeah, and also any integral to actually saving the day at the end as well, so that's a fairly uncommon thing, which is quite nice to see. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I like GoldenEye. Um, the, the rest of his tenure, though, is really diminishing returns. Yeah, there's the, there's the Rupert Murdoch film. Yeah, Tomorrow Never Dies is just about acceptable. I can live with that. They're doubling down on the effects work and all these as, as it goes on yep. to the point where there's not really anything remarkable in Tomorrow Never Dies. Uh, I can't really say too much about it. The World Is Not Enough Maybe the first of these Bond films that I actually went to see in a cinema, if memory serves. And I hadn't watched it since then, and I didn't want to watch it. And it was only because of this podcast I did. It's not very good at all. No, um, it, would have, it would have been better off since they put your man Bobby Carlyle in there. See if yes. they just made it, the villain Begbie. Unfortunately, you can say that about anything Robert <laughs> Carlyle is in. If he played it as Begbie, yeah, it would have been um, a better film. But, um, so the, the magical man who feels no pain because he has a bullet in the middle of his head. or yeah, There's not much going on there. Some terrible jokes forced in. Again, too reminiscent of the movie, right? like the, the Christmas yeah, jokes and stuff. Exactly. Nuclear plots. Not not a thing memorable in this. And then giant space lasers. Yes. Die another day. With people changing their face completely. <laughs> I was like, okay. I'm getting into realms of sci-fi a bit here. Yeah, I mean, this one really invisible is. Invisible cars. Very effects like yeah. invisible cars, you know, the minefield. There's something to be said in having the start of this where, you know, captured by the North Koreans and put in jail. That's interesting, there's, actually, yeah. There's inklings of something interesting there, but it's almost immediately forgotten about. Die Another Day is just a bit silly. I, I, and also, there's elements in Die Another Day that I like. I mean, I, I kind of like the whole Gustav Graves, which is the, you know, the North Korean uh, guy kind of reinvents himself as this, uh, this guy who's based on a somewhat parody of what Bond himself self is and yeah. you know, there's elements there where I can see what they're aiming for but the whole film itself is just a bit of an effects laden nonsense. Yeah but even then well, it's not even so much the effects in this as the, the props are just so, so dodgy it's like the dream mask which is basically a translucent bit of plastic <laughs> with some yeah. coloured lights attached to it and it looks like yeah. a translucent bit of plastic with some coloured lights attached to it that they probably yeah. put together from stuff from Maplin for 20, 30 quid. Yeah. But yeah, Gustav is, is Toby um, Stevens. Oh, what's his name? Toby Stevens. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, he does a, he has a fine line sort of sneering delivery, which I think works quite well. He's one of the better Bond villains. Yeah, he's quite um, an appealing character like that. Yeah, this uh, supercilious nature sneering because yeah, he's looking down on Bond and, you know, and yeah, that, that works quite well. It's frustrating. There's a good film in Die Another Day somewhere, but it's not made it onto the, <laughs> the canvas in the end of the day. No. And when you look back on the whole Brosnan era, well, none of those films, I think, are really dreadful. There's nothing that plums the depths of the Moon era, but in 
generally it's just all a bit forgettable. Really the only thing that this whole these four films did of any real use for the franchise was its updating of the MI6 agency staff. Of course, this is where you start seeing Judy Dench as, uh, as M, who's very effective in it and will go on to play quite major roles in the, the next era. So that is perhaps the, the real one thing that changed out of these four films that had any kind of lasting effect on the franchise and was certainly a positive in my mind. So talking of which then, like so many other things around about the same time, Bond got rebooted, whereas the rest all on a Majesty's Secret Service side all seemed to be largely a continuation of the same character. They said, right, we're going back to the beginning here. And this was a, a Bond film that was basically in the mould of the Bourne films, yes. which was odd, ironic at least, because the, the Bourne films were very much like, what we're going to be is not Bond. Very much going to be not Bond, and then Bond copied Bourne. I mean, there's a whole sort of cottage industry of um, Bond rebooted for the next generation, you know, things like Triple X mm. with Vin Diesel and Triple X 2. Size cubes. We said, which the better. There's all sorts of these things uh, going through, but it's nice to see that Bond himself was finally realised that it was time for a change. So the reboot brings Daniel Craig in. Yeah. It's hard, it's hard to see that as being anything other than a major positive for the franchise. Yeah. Everything just is very much toned down in. Casino Royale. It's responding to the success of the Bourne franchise too. It's starting off with him before he was even a double O agent. So sort of, sort of yeah. his formative time, what made him the Bond that we would come to know and love. It's grittier. It's lower key too because it's more just about money and influence there. And that's always better because like, plots to destroy the world get quite tiresome. And it's, it's easier to get invested in something lower key like that. Sometimes when it's just in, you're going to destroy the world, it goes like, well, obviously they're not going to destroy the world. Um, there, there's no peril here at all. You know that's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, whereas you, you start having like things about corruption and maybe influencing government departments with money and things. You're like, oh, well, okay, well that you could actually have that in a Bond film and have them not be successful at some of that. You could believe yeah. that would happen. You know, quite a different change in style to the hyperkinetic editing that was coming in that time is adopted here a bit. Everything doesn't seem quite so slick and even because of the most Bond films, apart from perhaps the Dalton ones aside, are actually quite colourful. Um, yeah. It's much more muted Casino Royale and better for it, I would say. Yeah, certainly this is leaps and bounds ahead of anything since Connery's era. Very enjoyable film. I can kind of get behind people who criticised it saying that it's not a Bond film because in the sense that the Bond kind of became a genre to itself, yeah. this isn't it. This is very clearly something different. It's very much a reimagining of it. And uh, for my money, it's well worth doing something like this. Yeah. Because surely you've had enough of that same frank, uh, formulaic stuff you've going through. 44 years of doing the other stuff. But is it not time to try something new? And, yeah. uh, and I think it worked. I think the majority of people think, oh yeah, because you know, well, that's a good one. Yeah, also been very successful. Um, Craig himself, a great Bond. He's clearly a very good actor. He's, he's probably the best pure actor who's come to Bond. I was surprised by his casting because he's not someone I'd ever thought about for his physicality before now. I keep imagining things like, uh, you know, kitchen sink dramas like The, the Mother, mother, like yeah. mother and things like that. Uh, well, but I remember... He pulls it off tremendously. I remember not rating Daniel Craig at all. I remember certainly thinking of Layer Cake, which I found an enjoyable film, but just Daniel Craig and I, just to me, just always found him very kind of flat. Not bad so much, but very flat. And then Casino Royale came yeah. on. I was like, oh, right, actually, I quite like this guy. Yeah, so I mean, that's it's the reimagining of Bond. It's the birth of Bond again, is what they do here. Um, yeah, it's, it's, what, what we've done is give Bond 
a character yeah. and then over the course of a film develop yes. that which is something we've never seen <laughs> yes. before in <laughs> film I out. imagine the character changes you give them some reason motivation which they keep coming back to in subsequent films too which yeah. has worked for the most part quite well so Casino Royale really says for a wee bit then we have Quantum of Solace. A lot of people really hate Quantum of Solace. I, I can't get behind that thing, and especially the more you kind of learn about the, the genesis of this it's film, a, how it was made. A good, it's, a, it's a definite damnation of the Hollywood system used to make these films. Yeah, it's happening uh, in the middle. But nothing of, to do with the people on it. happening in the midst of the writer's strike. Now, I don't hate it, but I really don't like it. How on earth do you get to the position where you can just start shooting a film where you don't have a script yeah. and think that's an accepted way to go and just have, basically just have the director it. and the actor make it up on the fly? Yeah. So, yeah. Crazy. So, for all I think I think it actually works very well given those limitations. It does. Um, I think um, given those limitations, what is really lacking in Quantum of Solace is the story. What it feels like to me is Casino Royale one point five rather yes. than the next film. And you know, so but again, when it gets to the action scenes when the hotels blown up at the end, I begin to lose interest. When you're finding out about this shady organisation, Quantum, that's controlling people around the world, that's like, well, that's really interesting. And then it's yeah. like, I'll oh, just shoot some things for you and I just must I switch off again. So again, there's seeds of something interesting there that, for various reasons, the writer's strike perhaps being one of them, never really got fully developed, I don't think. Even despite that, I think it still it works on a number of levels, um, particularly I think it's, a, it's another one where it's got a good uh, Bond girl role who's strong and doesn't need to give in to Bond's uh, whims and works on a level where you don't need to caveat it in the way that you have with all the rest of them. Well, I suppose there is one slight one at the end where Bond needs to kind of save him from the, the kind of burning fire, but even that's sort of set up with how, how their character came about in the first instance. Mm-hmm. So I think on a, bit, on a number of bases that it works quite well, it does introduce the whole kind of quantum, the whole bringing of uh, evil syndicates that you didn't know about before. That stuff kind of works very well. Um, like you say, it's, it does kind of just have to end in a fireball because they didn't really have anything better to do with it, I guess. But even despite that, I think it still works well enough. It's not my favourite of this uh, era, but it's, it's by no means a disgraceful entry in the series. And then we come on to Skyfall, which for me probably rivals Casino Royale for quality. Yes. yes. In this case, you've got something from M's past rather than Bond's past yeah. coming up to cause problems. A, a superb, possibly one of the most memorable Bond films has ever been, I think. Javier Bardem's fantastic in this film. Yes. He's creepy and camp and scary, but smart at the same time. He's always a really interesting character. Motivation, perhaps not strong, but you've got to consider that he's perhaps not hugely mentally stable. So you add that together, it makes that quite appealing. It's not, and because it's about M's past, it becomes less about Bond. That makes it more interesting yeah. too. It's like, and, so you're getting character development, but of a different character, which is something they hadn't tried before either. Yeah. And then so also with you having a transition of characters too, so Judy Dench is stopping and you're introducing Ralph Fiennes in a um, surprisingly toned down role for him to become yeah. the new M. Naomi Harris becoming Money Penny. There is progression here and sort of yeah, they're, they're touching back to the old characters and things, but in a way that doesn't feel too forced. Yeah. Unlike Spectre. <laughs> we'll get <laughs> on to that. And yeah, so you've got a compelling story. The action set pieces in this actually, for the most part, don't turn me off quite as much as they have done in other films. I mean, maybe because it's hard to be turned off by being barraged by a helicopter gunship, but it's not just some men running yeah. around with AK-47s on an oil rig. Plus, before that, you got the awesome bit of Bond trying to home alone his, yes. his old place by setting up various booby traps. Yeah, uh, is- that's great, yeah. And also you've got the actual death of a major character, which they've not done before. But, you know... Yeah. 
but per film some characters have died or some Bond girls and stuff but even look back to um, License to Kill when they wanted to give Bond some motivation and they couldn't even bring themselves to to kill Felix yeah. Slater they just had to get his leg gnawed off by a shark but this one they've actually bit the bullet so to speak yeah so um, Sam Mendes and here really good form really strong script in Skyfall for another film but they've um, had to backfill the, the title song but I think one of the more memorable title songs in, in the last <laughs> couple of decades probably yeah so it's really successful because it's got a memorable villain they do real good things with the characters they actually show some bravery and kill a character off a major character a very well liked character and as well as at the same time transitioning to sort of the next stage it's successful in so many ways there's very little that I don't like about Skyfall yes I enjoyed it immensely there's one thing that annoys me in that whole of that film where they blow up the uh, MI6 office apparently by hacking a gas main yes. and I don't think that's possible No, I've um, seen a gas main and it's a pipe yeah. you can't hack a pipe um, I think maybe they got the idea from Die Hard 4.0 where it's like well, we'll basically just send all the gas somewhere up block and the gas travels as fire apparently along pipes it's the most efficient way of doing it yeah but yeah apart from that it's minor things you know and yeah. the the hacking bit with Q when um, having a bar dem escapes it's like yeah, okay that's that's yeah. a bit computers and films never accurately represented that's another prime example of that the no. Bond for the large part is shied away from computers Skyfall really successful probably rivaling, rivaling Casino Royale for best of Daniel Craig's output so far things are looking just want to echo everything you say there about Javier Bardem who's excellent in yeah. this uh, amazingly creepy um, that bit where he kind of takes out his uh, teeth yeah. jaw kind of thing Ooh, yeah that is creepy um, yeah. yeah great stuff I just, there's a little bit of sort of homoeroticism to it just add that uh, it's a little frisson that's not yeah. makes him a more <laughs> character when he's interrogating Bond on the island and it's like there's just wee touches like that and you're not I mean is he gay is Bond responding to that or is he just like messing with him and it just it makes yeah. the character that much more interesting because you don't quite know what's going on there yeah it's like that we had a sexual tension perhaps but yeah it's um it just makes him such an interesting character because it's played so well by Javier Bardem as well um so yeah. it's all set up really really well and then Spectre comes out. Yes. Now, I suppose I should preface this. Sorry, I watched this on Monday. recording this on Friday, just after it came out. Now, when I was sitting in the cinema, I would say I enjoyed this almost as much as I enjoyed uh, Skyfall and Casino Royale. Lucky you. I thought, I thought while it was going through, it, it worked okay. It, it, went, it, it bombed through quite well, with one notable exception. Um, uh, perhaps get ahead of myself. Spectre, of course, sees uh, the return of the evil organisation that uh, Bond's been plagued with for so long. It's headed up uh, Blofeld in this instance is now played by Christopher Waltz who you would think would be an excellent safe pair of hands. Yep. The plot itself sees a MI6 under threat when a rival government agency which is more about computer surveillance and that kind of thing is kind of trying to take over the MI6's operations and it turns out that this is uh, also in the pocket of Spectre. There's a few things that I did like in this film from the start. I thought it was uh, an effective opening, the whole Mexico City thing, although from from my Mexican wife, apparently not a particularly realistic portrayal of Mexico <laughs> City. That said, it, it puts him on the trail of Spectre and he sort of, after killing a Spectre hitman, he sort of starts unravelling the lead which brings him to the whole organisation and trying to uncover that and so on and so forth. The problem with Spectre is that it's really standing up to no scrutiny whatsoever. The the one thing that I think didn't work at all on, a, on any level, in the most mundane level at all, is there's a, a car chase between uh, the big bad, who, well, the, the big physical threat in the film is played by uh, Big Dave Bautista from the WWE. Or um, Jaws 2.0 is basically what it's like. He's basically half Jaws, half odd job. 
Yeah, um, um, as bad as what, that sounds. So there's one thing that, well, two things annoy me about the film. One, most of his action occurs in a uh, car chase, which is no way to show off his physicality, and also it's a very boring car yeah, chase. Yeah, actually, they manage to combine, they're, well, they're trying to combine some of the exposition with a car chase, yeah. which is stupid, <laughs> boring, and insanely long bit of film. Yeah. The other thing that annoys me about having uh, Dave Bautista in is that from having seen him before in his WWE days, this is a man who looks incredible in a, 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 a sort of sharply tailored suit. Because when you put like a, a kind of tight-fitting suit on a guy that size, because he's an incredible physical specimen, uh-huh. it, it looks incredibly impressive. And clearly, the guys that were writing this film saw that and thought, well, let's take that. But instead of just stealing it outright, they've put their own flourish on it. So they've tried to dress him up as some kind of foppish dandy <laughs> by giving him waistcoats. I mean, really, he's... he's just a, a step away from having like a pocket square and a little uh, pocket watch and perhaps some kind of monocle and top hat. <laughs> ludicrous. Absolutely ludicrous. He looks like a clown. I'm sorry, Dave Batista, and I know you'd powerbomb me through a table if I said that, but you look like a clown. Oh, uh, um, yeah. I'm very fresh with seeing Spectre. I saw it about three hours ago and... I'm afraid I really, really didn't like expect that. I'd been looking forward to it so much because because Skyfall was so good and Casino Royale had been so good. Um, yeah, it, it absolutely fell apart on the drive home for me when I thought, hang on, that didn't make any sense. I didn't even that was stupid. That. that was forced. So, yeah, hang on, this film was terrible. I have a number of um, particular issues with it. And I'm obviously, it being the fresh film, it's just that I'm not going to spoil it. But yeah, so much, forced is a good word. So much of it was forced is like, Remember this bit from yes. other Bond films? Remember this bit? Do you remember these characters? Like, and it just—it was driving me crazy. It's, yeah, it was terrible. It's at least forty minutes too long. It really dragged for me, and because it introduces Spectre, right? But they already basically had Spectre. It was Quantum. They'd already done yeah. that, and they decided to say, "No, you know, Quantum. Yeah, we control them." Um, and that—that's spoiling anything there because that's. Basically, the setup of the film. Yes. Um, there's actually there was a and the, and the title there's, of the there's film, a shady so. organization behind the shady organization from two films ago, and yeah, none of that makes any sense. It's it's really yeah. really forced. It's like, well, we had the Spectre thing. We need to try and fit it in with stuff that's happened before, and they keep saying, "Do you remember these things that happened? That was us." And like, no, no, none of that makes any sense. It had nothing to do with it. There was no mention of that at all. No hint of that. Um, you're retconning it. Basically, the, a huge chunk of. Um, Spectre's yeah. retconning the last three films. I would have let it away if it had just made one sort of light reference to it all rather than continually hammer the yeah. point home. It's a premise that just bears no scrutiny whatsoever. It is retconning uh, this kind of coordinated plan. It's like, oh, look, we were behind everything all along. It's that that sort of thing that, that annoyed me about Battlestar Galactica, where, you know, they said they had a plan. It's like, clearly you don't have a plan. Yes. This is all just trying to fit the facts to, uh, to your narrative and it doesn't really make any sense. Yeah, at it all. doesn't. And then there's the other things that bother me. I'm really surprised this from Sam Mendes, but some of the performances are just, well, they're terrible. Oh, Christoph yeah, yeah, Valls is completely wasted. Um, I cannot believe what they've done to this guy because it's especially annoying because I think there are moments where you see flashes of it. There's moments where he has that kind of mix of charm and menace and sociopathy that, that kind of works particularly well. But and then in the very next sentence, he's Dr. Evil. Yeah. He is literally he's, Dr. Evil. He's basically Dr. Evil. The relationship they're putting in the film with him, just it doesn't work. He's he's terrible. It's, when you see things like Django Unchained, or even Big Eyes from the start of the, yeah. year, um, the year, Tim Burton's film, in Big Eyes, there's menace to him. There's absolute menace. Because yes. um, sociopathy too. And then the charm and swagger and stuff. So he's like, Christopher was generally effortlessly good. And when a director's accomplished as Sam Mendes, you'd expect more. And it's nothing. There's 
Christoph Waltz is wasted. Then you've got another major character, M's new boss, C. Um, sort of, they're basically stealing that from well, some real life and a lot, large chunk of John Le Carre there. But the guy playing C is awful. It's quite an astonishingly flat performance. He's basically, you think he's spent the entire film in bed. It's going, oh yeah, we're taking over MI5 now, you know, the MI6 double O agents are dead. Uh, he's he's terrible. I mean, I thought for a moment he was just trying to be a sort of you know, generic government Mandarin and that's why he's playing it kind of low-key and done, but no, that, it, just, it just is that all the way throughout it's when he's in the cupboards being, oh look, actually I'm evil. Ha, he's ha, so, ha. It's like he stops still, oh look, actually I'm evil. Ha, yeah. ha, ha. He's so low-key, you know? he's basically off. <laughs> so there's that, there's the, the, everything about the film actually, the more I really didn't enjoy it, the more I think about it too, everything's just, it's like a really like grade C effort. The script is awful. The dialogue is at the best perfunctory. It's really forced. There's none of that easygoing quippery that's been in some of the other Daniel Craig stuff. Not, not Moore-like quips, but it's like an, an easy back and forth, a bit of a swagger to the character that's just, it's a completely absent inspector. So it's got bad dialogue, bad script, overlong action sequences that aren't particularly entertaining. And the other thing about it too, because they keep coming back to stuff that's going on, particularly in like the Sean Connery era too. Um, they keep coming back to these characters and things and... And the whole film actually felt, it felt like an old style Bond film. And yeah. in 2015, I mean, it's completely out of its time. It's, it just does not work anymore. I was kind of expecting this because I've been talking about it for a little while about, you know, Craig, Daniel Craig saying, let's try and bring back elements of the, uh, you know, the classic Bond stuff from the movie or that kind of yeah. thing. And it's just insane. I mean, it, you're talking about reintroducing this in the same way that I would talk about reintroducing smallpox <laughs> into the country. It, it's not a good idea. No, it's not. It's, and it really does not fit at all, especially when for a lot of the film, you're still trying to pick up the same tone as you had in Casino Royale but you're mixing it with the insanely stupid bit. <laughs> it just makes for a really uneven film. And it, it really hampers it. I mean, the places like that car chase we were talking about, um, that's where they're bringing these silly little Moorera elements like, oh, I need, to, I need to try and get him off my tail. It's like flick these whips. Oh, atmosphere. And you click it and you get a, a blast of music. Yes. Yeah, it uh, you know, it's, it's just lots of really bad jokes yeah, really corny in the middle stuff. of an action scene. Yeah, feels like an old Bond film and it, that's not a good thing. It's, it's so out of its time. I mean, they were, in the mid-80s, they were getting old. 2015 in, in this modern cinema landscape, no. It doesn't cut it, it just it feels so wrong. Your own franchise has proved that it didn't work. Yeah. Don't go back to it. Greatly disappointed by Spectre. It's the first massive misstep that this modern year has made. Yep. From the promo junkets that are going around, there seems to be talk that this might be Craig's last... Um, certainly doesn't seem too happy with it but then again you catch him on a good day and he says no no actually I like it it seems to largely depend on what side of the bed he got up on this morning as to whether this is his last Bond film or not I hope it's not because I wouldn't want him to go out on this note no. because it is a bum note it is indeed yes if you can go in and watch it without really thinking about it too much okay you might get something out of it like I tried to do when I watched it the first time but yeah it does not stand up to the slightest bit of scrutiny and that's really sad because no. all, even something like Quantum of the Solace I think did you could see what they're aiming for an awful lot of the things they're doing for in this one but in this it's just absolutely nothing to it it's uh, just a sequence of things none of which that make sense in isolation all put together and a thing that makes no sense in the whole as well if it was like sort of one thing that was a problem it might not be so bad but really for me it's basically everything the plotting and the script and the dialogue and the pacing 
and the acting and the character motivations and the tone none of it works so altogether it's, it's a horrible film there's a point just after something in the film explodes where Bond says this isn't the end of it and I really wish that had been the end of it but no <laughs> yeah. it kept on going yeah that's largely a discussion of Bond then I guess um, unfortunately well, we'll leave it on a bit of a down note um, when things had, for the last few years been getting so much better um, well I mean there's, there's always that but we can, we can probably draw some conclusions from all of this stuff I mean there's the standard thing of picking who your favourite Bond would be. It's um, Sean Connery, so obviously. Yeah, so do you want to do a bit of a ranking exercise? Yes, uh, I will. Okay, that's that's easy for me. It's Connery, Craig, Dalton, Lazenby, Moore. Well, actually, it's Connery, Craig, Dalton... Oh, I've forgotten Brosnan, sorry. I've forgotten old Bronholm. Yes. Right. Connery, <laughs> Craig, Dalton, Brosnan, um, Lazenby, Ellipsis, 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 Moore. Hmm. <laughs> okay. I guess you're not there, but just how much I dislike Roger Moore's James Bond. <laughs> yeah, your your feelings have been noted over the course of the film. Um, I kind of more or less agree, but I really can't see past putting Lazenby as the worst Bond because you know, I know he's he's only had the one outing, but he is just so bad and it is so out of place. Moore, okay. at least through sheer force of will, because he had more outings, could at least claim some better claim to it than that. But no, okay. I'm not. I'm not saying either are good, but can't see past John Connery. He is the classic quintessential Bond. Um, Daniel Craig's probably the best actor who's ever been Bond, so he he's second in my role. Third, Dalton again. I think he's just. just I have a soft spot for him. Things to say in terms of these films. Wasted on yeah. the role. Um, you could arguably put Brosnos above him. I think uh, Bronholm does a, a solid job, but he's just never too spectacular. Yeah, I'd struggle it, to so choose between him. Bronholm, better yeah. films. Dalton more appealing character but yeah we would toss up between them and then yeah, your last two are the opposite order of mine but yeah okay. do you have any favourite or worst films yeah. maybe a top five could you pop maybe come up with something like that because my, my top five is very easy to come up with so let's, let's think about top five and top three and a worst okay right. so I'll give that a go first if you want um, yep. okay favourites from Russia with Love I think still you know, early Connery just classic very closely behind this Casino Royale and after that, probably Skyfall, which just because I, th- I prefer the style of the newer films now, my taste having changed a bit. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it'd probably be from Russia with Love, Casino Royale, Skyfall, and probably maybe something like Thunderball just behind that. I don't like mm. Goldfinger much anymore. I used to like that a great deal, but I've gone off of that a bit larger because I cannot stand that woman. <laughs> and that, also, I always think about that line from Chainspotting, which I won't repeat for keeping this podcast largely clean of language. But and for oh, Honor Blackman, no, 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 no. Anyway, for worst Honor Majesty's Secret, no Octopussy. It's got to be Octopussy yeah. it's the, because it's got so many things I dislike. It's got Moore. It's a terrible, terrible film, and it's got a clown in it. Yeah, so <laughs> Octopussy worst. Okay. Oh, you just got yeah. a top three and worst one? Well, but simply because I know what it is, I'll, I'll, I'll go with my top okay, five, especially because a lot of them kind of collapse into each other, but I can't see... I find it difficult to separate Dr. No and From Russia With Love. I like them both quite a lot. Um, so they're kind of my one and two, chronologically, just because that's the that's kind of the way I roll. I like I'd go number one, Dot from Dr. No, two, From Russia With Love. Number three is Casino Royale. Number four is Skyfall. And number five, again, just because it has that kind of soft spot in my heart, I'd still go with Goldeneye. I very much like those films. There's a whole lot of... You know, Goldeneye could be replaced by a whole lot of the uh, Connery-era stuff. I think I like those almost as much as each other, but you could put Thunderball, you could put Goldfinger, you could put you know, Twice really in that role. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's that's more for me. Um, 
least favourites. When I was thinking about this a while back, I'd, I'd kind of come to the conclusion that Octopussy is a film that doesn't exist because <laughs> it is so bad. And if you if you go with that basis, that a, a film where you cast Stephen Berkoff can't be something that possibly exists. So I know I've seen it and I know we've spoken about it, but I'm just going to pretend that it doesn't exist and say it's on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Um, those two very much chewing for the bottom of the pile. Um, and again, I just I really don't like Lazenby or anything in that film that happens in that film at all. So yes, Honor Majesty's Secret Service can do one. <laughs> I mean, something we've we've touched upon occasionally, largely with the the, the attempts to crowbar the the theme the, the name of the film into the themes. But um, obviously, a big part of Bond films is the themes. The new one is particularly terrible. Oh, it's awful, uh, isn't it? One of the worst and one of the worst actual credit sequences yeah, as well. I, the whole I, kind of squid always, and inks just very poor. I was always going to say exactly the same thing there. It's like the horrible credit sequence, yeah. Amateurish as well. It looked really sort of cheap and yeah, it did. badly done. Um, yeah, would you have any particular favourites spring up from these, uh, this laundry list of tunes? Um, I'll, I'll pick three, I think, then, right. From Rush With Love, Matt Monroe from Rush With Love, I really like. It's just a really nice mm. tune. So uh, 1960s, easy listening, but it's just it's a great um, crooner um, singing a great song. Yeah. Diamonds Are Forever, Shirley Bassey, classic song. And hmm, I do like Skyfall, actually. So yeah. I think I would go um, From Rush With Love, Diamonds Are Forever, Skyfall. I always find it was a bit tricky to come up with a, the list of uh, your favourite themes because there's, there's almost two different ones. There's songs that work as specifically as a Bond theme and songs that I just like as, as more as a kind of pop listening things because... Much as I like, you know, Shirley Bassey's voice, I can't really listen to a lot of it. So <laughs> I wouldn't want to say have Goldfinger on repeat at me. It's just too much song for me. The actual themes that I like tend to be a bit more kind of a, a bit more off the beaten path. The one theme that I really like is Live and Let Die, mm-hmm. largely because it's three separate Bond themes <laughs> smashed into one. A great, a, a really one of the most interesting pieces of Paul McCartney's career, I think. So that's really good. It's a terrible film, but I like the track View to a Kill. Duran uh, Duran, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a good song. It's not a great Bond theme in the sort of traditional Shirley Bassey kind of sense, but I think it's a good track. Again, just in terms of being a song that I like, I do like the uh, Tomorrow Never Dies. Yeah, um, Cheryl uh, Crow did that one, didn't she? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a good track. No, actually, um, I never think about just, um, it wouldn't be in my favourite song, but I do have a soft spot for Aha's The Living Daylights, actually. Yep, I do quite like that. Um, All Time High, I don't much care for, because I don't like anything no. about Octopussy. Yeah, there's nothing else in there that really would be a challenger, I don't think, but apart from maybe Living Let Die, it's a good song. Yeah, so there's some of my favourites. My least favourite um, theme, incidentally, is uh, The Man with the Golden Gun by Lulu, which well, is... because it's uh, Lulu and she can't sing. Yeah, it is an appalling. Plus it has, the, has a very playground level of lyrics. It's not really much more above saying, there's a man with a gun, the gun is golden, she shoots people with a gun, da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, um, yeah. Do you have a least favourite? Possibly Spectre, actually. It's up there at the moment. It's awful. Yeah. Man with the Golden Gun's pretty poor. And this is a truly horrible song, that's new one. Yeah. Anything else I particularly dislike? I can't even remember. I've never been a fan of Goldeneye. Uh, Goldeneye is another yeah, one that's had to like try and backfill and to try and fit that into a song but it didn't work very well yeah. there was nothing else that I particularly really really dislike from a few of eyes only because Sheena Easton I don't care much for either but the song is more just sort of forgettable to me yeah I just that this nothing about Spectre's doing much for me just now and the theme song is definitely one of them so there we go a bit of a marathon discussion about James Bond for you but we're still not done with him the one proper Bond film that you may notice we've skipped is Never Say Never Again remake of Thunderball made by a separate company which is now actually folded back into the original company yeah so we will have a commentary of Never Say Never Again quite soon 
worryingly enough for you. <laughs> so we'll, we'll give you our thoughts on that one as we as we plough through that. Expect but, much wig talk. Yes. <laughs> Not really a high point in the career, so we've got plenty of things to discuss about that, I hope. But I hope you join us for that. We'll be with you in ten days for that. But until then, I have been Scott Morris. I was joined by Drew Davendale. Adios. We'll see you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.